welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm Phil Ford. Two weeks ago, we dropped our last episode, the second of a two-part discussion of Carl Jung. In the time since then, the world has changed. Those were the far-off days when people were protesting not being able to get haircuts. Today, two weeks later, not only the United States, but the entire world is pausing to contemplate white supremacy and colonialism and their baleful effects on those societies and cultures and populations that have been most wounded by them. Indeed, their baleful effects on all of us. J.F. and I talked about the protests a week ago. At that time, it looked as if the United States was sliding into terrible destruction and new oppressions, and our discussion was more an expression of feelings than thoughts. You can listen to that conversation on our Patreon. And while I feel I should note in passing that this is the sort of content that we're putting out for our beloved patrons, hint, hint, maybe you should go and sign up, my point here is to say that as I speak these words, a mere week after that Patreon episode dropped, the world feels like it is transformed again. And that episode now feels like a period piece from a distant era. Who knows what the world will look like by the time of our next show? Most of the time, we don't feel as if we're living in history. History is what happens somewhere else, in halls of government and on battlefields and so on. It's something we read about. The news is a counterpoint to our private affairs and daily business. History and everyday life each goes its own way, and that's what we're used to. On rare occasions, like 9-11, we have the keen, nervy feeling that the streams of history and private life have converged. It seems to me that since the quarantine began, we have had to learn how to live steadily with that feeling, an immense, intense now, but protracted indefinitely. I don't quite know what to make of it, but I do know it's weird, global weirding, as our friend Eric Davis once called it on this show. This week, J.F. and I are discussing 2001, A Space Odyssey. Given how many times we've mentioned this film and its famous monolith on the show, you'd think we'd have done a show on it before now. Stanley Kubrick was a huge influence on J.F.'s artistic development, and as a matter of fact, we have already discussed one of Kubrick's films, Eyes Wide Shut, in episode 30. But as special as Eyes Wide Shut is, 2001 is incomparable. We haven't talked about it before now because it belongs to a very short list of works that seem somehow too big to talk about. Things like Philip K. Dick's Vallis, or Henri Bergson's essay Introduction to Metaphysics, or the I Ching, which I mention almost every show but which I have been far too intimidated to talk about all on its own. Like, where do you even start? How could a single show do justice to something so great and fathomless as 2001? Well, in truth, you could say the same thing about any work of art. Nothing worth talking about could possibly be exhausted in a single podcast. So there's nothing for it. Time to grasp the nettle. 
This week, JF and I dare ourselves to walk right up to and touch the monolith that is 2001, A Space Odyssey. In what follows, you will hear about 83 minutes of us hooting and capering around the monolith and, we can only assume, evolving to the next stage of human development. Rest assured, if either of us transforms into a giant floating space baby, you'll hear about it on our next episode. Global weirding has gotten to the point that I'm not sure I'd even be surprised to open the paper and read about JF serenely orbiting the planet. It's been that kind of a year. Okay, on with the show. Vanity is satisfied by that. I'm glad to stroke your vanity any day, yeah. Phil. You feel free to do it any old time, really. <laughs> just, just call you out of the blue at three in the morning. You're so awesome. <laughs> My God, you're so awesome. I was just thinking about you, man. You're awesome. <laughs> the kings of old had guys for that. That's what we all need is a hype man. Yeah, but here in the middle class, we got to be each other's hype men. That's 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 what being in the middle class is all about. Well, me, hey, uh, business idea: hire yourself out as a hype man for hire, <laughs> <laughs> and adjust your sales pitch yeah. so that it's really aimed at middle managers. Right. You know the the backbone of the American middle class. Yeah, it's like you're the assistant shipping manager for a mid-sized trucking company, right, <laughs> out of Des Moines. You need a hype man. Knocking on doors. Or just like before you come into the Monday morning meeting, you've got your hype man, like yeah. he's ahead of you and he's already shouting out all the shit that you're going to talk about and <laughs> bragging about your productivity. Yeah. Interrupting you like to, to everyone. Like, get, get. Just making sure that everybody knows that your son scored a run on the in the Pop Warner football right. game that weekend, <laughs> you know. We need a hype man for ordinary bourgeois activities and accomplishments. Right. I think I'm onto something. I think this might allow me to... Well, uh, life coaches are almost that. Yeah, actually, this is true. Except the life coach doesn't actually accompany you... No. ...through your day-to-day, -day, letting everybody know how awesome you are. You see, that's the missing piece of the puzzle. Right. So it needs to be someone who's basically telling you you're awesome in front of other people? Yes. Yeah, right. Agreeing yeah, with I you and others a... disagree. Yeah. Like your hype and... man's at the meeting, even though he has no... Role to play in the business, but he's that's like, right. he's, he makes a good point. <laughs> he's standing behind you being like, that's right. <laughs> and then it catches and everyone at the conference has their own height men. So it's like <laughs> the meeting is twice the size and everybody's talking. It's, it's really long and very loud and, and then, everybody comes out of there with headaches and we're like, it was so much better before there were yeah. height men for middle managers because, you know, you would end up having your guy also dropping ferocious roasts on, right, on the your others. competitors. Yeah, exactly. And and at a certain point, uh, you'd have to take the aggression up a notch. So, yeah. you know, it would be like hype men getting in each other's face. And and, and the only place it could go is uh, physical violence. violence. Yeah. So yeah. we're... we're uh, Conflict. Yeah. Is, Combat. It's starting to sound like just we're just talking about lawyers. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like in in our age, yeah, all professions tend toward the conditions of lawyers. Right, exactly. That's the uh, it all converges on lawyer. Yes, the lawyer is the presiding spirit of the age. Yeah, it has been for several centuries now. Mm. Um, I feel like we should talk about two thousand one, especially since we have a narrow window. Yes. Narrowish window, relatively narrow window. No, we're good. Well, now. I don't know. Actually, we've got till three. Yeah, we're uh, good. Now that I think of it, so I think we're good. Two thousand and one. So uh, this Fuck, is a, where do you even start? Where do we start? And it's it's a obviously a movie that has it come up before. It's come up. The Black Monolith has come up quite oh, a bit on this show. Yeah, I was thinking about how the Black Monolith is. Um, it's the official something of weird studies. The official metaphorical object, uh, the official um, mysterious artifact, uh, the official, I don't know, the official monolith (laughs) of the Weird Studies podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Except no substitutes. We've been using the 2001 space monolith as like a metaphor for things from pretty much the very beginning. You know, and I was rewatching this film, I was like, shit, the space monolith is actually kind of the perfect figure for art as you and I have discussed it. I mean, think about it. It's like the space monolith just appears. We don't know where it's from, what it's for. We don't really understand the agency behind it. It appears... And then everybody starts jumping up and down and hooting and yelling at it. Yeah. And uh, touching it. Meanwhile, the thing itself remains in perfect and serene indifference to all of the hooting and screeching and capering happening around it. And although although it has no content, there's nothing written on it, it doesn't deliver any message that we can understand or decipher, it nevertheless reframes the entire process in which we kind of exist and live. Like it basically reestablishes new terms for the evolution of the species. And that brings to mind uh, McLuhan's eventual coming around to the idea that the medium essentially has no content. It's almost like a black monolith. It's just a conduit for new becomings, right? A a tunnel, a, 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 a gate, a stargate into new modes of being. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's been around since the start for us. It's our old friend, the monolith. It's, it's a bit dusty. It needs a good dusting, the monolith. It's yeah, looking I'm a little gray. Thinking of, thinking of another business opportunity, making monoliths for suburban houses, you know. Just, Instead of garden gnomes? Yeah. You need your own 2001 space monolith. <laughs> actually, if there was some way I could actually manage that, I would totally have a 2001 space monolith, actual size in my garden. Yeah. On the front, in the front or the back? Well, it would be more impressive from the front. Yeah, I agree. But but uh, but then, you know, the uh, the line workers come to do a bit of work in the uh, utilities behind our house and they have to traipse through our backyard and they see a fucking space monolith just yeah. sitting there. <laughs> that would... I'm doing it. That's, yeah, I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah. You could just get it. Uh, it doesn't need to be iron. It could be wood. <laughs> just, I just build a plywood just box. Just plywood box painted black. <laughs> okay. it, it, it might lack some of the majesty 
Well, from a distance, the original. Yeah, no, I agree. But from a distance, it might be impressive. Sort of like the, um, uh, what the fuck is it? Never mind. I was about to. Yeah, (laughs) that was good. Forget forget I almost said something. So, Um, so this. So anyway, yeah, yeah, the the black monolith. It's the most weird studies emblem ever. Emblem of art. And we decided and, to but do... There, but then again, there I go, yet another asshole coming up with an interpretation of 2001. Well... There's so many interpretations. I mean, one... Okay, so one reason why, even though arguably this film is like the presiding spirit of the Weird Studies enterprise, we haven't done a show on it. I think at a certain point we realized that there's certain works of art that are so big and so central to us that we almost kind of don't know how to approach yeah, them. Right. And, you know, Vallis by uh, Philip K. Dick or The I Ching, which I talk about all the time, but we've never done a show on it. And so this year we're trying to uh, buckle up and talk about some of these things that feel like they're impossible to talk about. And I remember when I mentioned the possibility of doing 2001, you were like, oh, shit, there's already been so much written about it, so many things said about it. And so, you know, it's just sort of like I was rewatching it and was like, okay, how do you talk about this film in such a way that you're not just throwing another log on the exegetical fire. Another person is like, oh, Hal represents the Faustian spirit or whatever. And here we are. 2000 monolith equals art. Boom. That's my interpretation. A rather rough-spoken violin professor I once knew liked to say, opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. Right. And uh, I could say the same thing about interpretations. So, yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah. Then again, you could say that about any show we do. What else do we do? That's what we do. We interpret. And I think there are good and bad interpretations. Let's be clear about that. Or at least there are there are boring interpretations and there are fun ones. And we, I, we've got some fun ones for you people. Fun interpretations. Well, JF does. We both do. Come on. The first thing I want to say about 2001 is that... It is not an adaptation of an Arthur C. Clarke novel, which everybody almost that I've discussed this film with thought was the case. And that's important for many reasons, but I just want to lay it out there because uh, what happened was Kubrick approached Clarke to work on a science fiction film. What Kubrick wanted to do was to make the ultimate science fiction film, the science fiction film that would change science fiction. And he had very interesting reasons for wanting to do that. But for now, I just want to say that he approached Clark. Clark had written a story called uh, The Sentinel, which is a short story about the discovery of a pyramid on the moon. At first, the idea was that the 2001 film, which at that point was called Journey Beyond the Stars, I believe, would climax with this discovery of the pyramid on the moon. But as you can see from the film, it continued to evolve from there and became something entirely different. And what happened was that Kubrick and Clark uh, met and discussed and wrote treatments and started to build this story together. And then they both went their separate ways from using the same source material, which they developed together. And Clark wrote the book and Kubrick made his film and they didn't really communicate during that time. And then the book and the film were released separately. So 
that's why I'm just wary of interpretation. We're talking about interpretations and opinions that tend to interpret the film in light of the book. Because as became clear later from Kubrick in his interviews is that he was very disappointed in how Clark had treated the material in the novel. He thought that Clark had indulged in an unhealthy or unhelpful didacticism about what meant what and what is what. It's harder in a novel form to do what Kubrick's doing in a film, because in a film, you don't have to say anything. You just show things. In a novel, the characters are scientists discussing these things. They'll have theories themselves, and you kind of get caught up in how the characters are subjectively experiencing this thing. And of course, then you have Clark, who comes from essentially a hard science fiction background, and he's coming from a very different place than Kubrick. Kubrick is coming from an entirely different kind of metaphysical place. And so let's just start by separating those two things. I think one reason why everybody thinks that it's a version of Clark's book is because I think they did for purposes of maintaining a unified front and public harmony. Um, my impression is that they did kind of give everybody the impression that this was more of a collaboration than maybe it really was. The script was written by Clark. There is a script you can read online that Clark wrote with Kubrick. It's very different from the film, but you can see how it would be wrong to say that it wasn't a collaboration. The script was definitely collaboration. The film is a different beast altogether, but the screenplay was definitely collaboration. I think it's right to say that the screenplay of 2001 is a collaboration between Kubrick and Clark. However, Kubrick had a tendency to completely reinvent the film on the set in such a way that yeah. it's a, a totally different creature by the time he's finished editing it. I guess what I was trying to put my finger on is just like the complete difference in atmosphere between Kubrick tone. and Clark. Yeah. yeah. Total difference in tone. If you read the conclusion of 2001, Clark's novel, the idea is that the star child like detonates all these nuclear weapons that are in orbit, the earth. Yeah. Like his power is so godlike, he can just like with a snap of his fingers make the world change. Um, and by the time he's done changing the world, he's already bored and moving on to new horizons. So we are given to understand there's this like massive god being floating in the sky that is like attained superhuman powers in enormous neotenous Superman floating in space. And uh, I think that that's the lamest fucking thing I've ever heard. It's so <laughs> fucking lame. So it's like Godzilla, essentially. He's essentially yeah. Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. it's like a, <laughs> an enlightened Godzilla. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, well, I mean, but he's working in his tradition. Uh, yeah, hard sci-fi, which as much as I love sci-fi, I find like hard sci-fi so annoying, partly because I think it just reminds me of a part of myself that I keep chained up in the basement. I, I'm picturing this thing in your basement as a as a wide-eyed fetus. <laughs> this no. atrophic creature that's half grown um, <laughs> and, and has yeah. a Reddit account and is constantly typing away on Reddit while you're sleeping. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. I think that Kubrick's intentions with uh, 2001 went beyond making a great science fiction film. 
I think that the reason he wanted to make a great science fiction film is because he thought that the questions that science fiction asked, mainly, or I guess most importantly, the question, are we alone, was not a question that should be relegated to, you know, childhood fantasies or wish fulfillment or Saturday morning cartoons. It was the most important question of our times. And he wanted to reframe this question by making a film that made the question a serious question, even a religious question. Uh, whereas the question of whether there are little green men or whether we're alone was a, a seen as a kind of joke before 2001. Uh, not by everybody. In fact, in preparation for the film, he had one of his assistants go and interview like dozens of scientists from around the world. And he actually wanted to start the movie with a bunch of in excerpts from these interviews, like Melville's like long quotes at the beginning of Moby Dick. Like he's got like 20 pages of quotes about whales. He wanted to do that and have a bunch of scientists telling us how important the question is. And then the film would begin and we'd be in the right frame. Of course, he jettisoned this idea eventually. Uh, but the idea was like, the question that Buck Rogers or Star Trek uh, or whatever is asking us, how do we make that question urgent and meaningful to each of us? That's why he wanted to make a great science fiction film. Also, the mm. other, his other motivation was to make a film film, a film that could not be anything but a film. And in the interviews he did around 2001, he makes this really clear that his goal was to make a film that was not reducible to any other medium. He thought that most films that had been made up to then could have been just as good as plays. If you could have a, a sophisticated enough theater, you could have made these films as theater plays or as novels. He wanted to make something that functioned cinematically. And I think he succeeded in that. And that's how that film, the influence of that film is due to the absolutely revolutionary effect it had on the minds of people who were making movies suddenly realizing, oh, that's how you make a movie. Not that you want to make it in that style, but that's what a cut means, right? That's what a movie is. And others before Kubrick had seen this, but Kubrick demonstrates it in an in a overpowering way with this movie, I think. He forces mm -hmm. you to see it. It's interesting how when directors want film to be most perfectly film, that a lot of the talking kind of falls away. Yeah, yeah. My impression is that Kubrick, like some other directors who have said similar things, wanting to create a kind of a, a film that could not be anything other than a film, a kind of um, medium specificity a la Clement Greenberg. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that when people are thinking about that vis-a-vis -vis film, they're wanting to avoid being too talky. They're wanting to avoid turning film into an offshoot of literature. Yeah. Well, you know. Words on the page with an alternative delivery device. I, th I read somewhere that only about 40 minutes is given over to speech. And so not, it's a very, yeah. and even it's a very this, quiet film, untalky un film at any rate. It is. And most of the dialogue is kind of this banal exchange of small talk. Yeah. And then there's a bit of exposition, but then it's interspersed with like a lot of... Um, niceties and that sort of thing between the yeah and and that's all of course intended and he continued to use that technique and, and eyes wide shut it's all over the place people are talking they're not getting to the point they're just kind of exchanging almost like um, 
you almost get the idea that these humans are, uh, in a sense, mechanical dolls. And this is something that Kubrick was big on, to, to, to mechanize the human being so that you can see how everything that comes out of their mouths is part of this kind of social ritual that's dictated by their environment. Uh, that's something that I, I see in Kubrick. I see in Full Metal Jacket. You see it in The Shining. When Jack goes crazy in The Shining, he starts to quote TV shows. That's how he's expressing his madness. Here's Johnny and all that, and uh, mm. or, or fairy tales. He just becomes a channel for cultural vestiges, like things floating in the air, almost like an antenna. There's nothing left of him. And I think that you see that in 2001. The characters, he wants to show us how these modern humans are pretty much doing the same thing that the ancient hominids did. Uh, it's about food and gathering and competition and war, but it's just all sublimated in all these various ways into this appearance of civilization when in fact it's still the same old game going on. And that's not to say that the game is bad or anything. It's just that I think he's trying to do I'm, – all I'm saying is that he's trying to do something with the dialogue that is itself cinematic. It's part of the cinematic aspect of the film. Even the dialogue is not a breaking away from his pure cinema vision, but I think he was trying to make the dialogue – also contribute to this ultimate cinematic way of seeing the world and seeing reality. Like when you talk about the problem of talking in film, Sergei Eisenstein, one of the great pioneers of cinema, Soviet film director from the silent film days, when talkies came around, sound film came around, he wrote a kind of manifesto in which he said that, because, you know, the thing about Eisenstein is he realized that the medium specificity of film, like to quote Clement Greenberg or to use Clement Greenberg's concept, the thing that film does and only film does, the thing that it doesn't borrow from other media is the cut, the cut from one image to another. Yeah. And Eisenstein realized that, he called it montage and he developed montage theory. And when talkies came around, he kind of started to see... The potential for a problem because he was like if sound becomes tied to what we see on the screen if all we hear is always constantly synced to what's going on we're going to lose montage we're going to lose the importance of the cut the cut will become almost invisible and the film will become just a new form of of theater or of serialized fiction or i don't know it'll become something it's not uh, it's important that if we are going to put sound in film, the sound and the images need to exist on separate planes and need to work contrapuntally. And again, you watch 2001 and the contrapuntal uh, role that sound plays is clear. It's constantly yeah. contrasting with the image and moving. It's not just tied to the image or reinforcing the image. It's actually often at odds with the image, you know, the Blue Danube and the space station and all that. That's Interesting, because I would have thought that – how to put this? Um, you know, when I watch 2001 or other f films that are doing similar things, like, for example, uh, the famous part eight of Twin Peaks, The Return, or what's, an, what's another example? Uh, something we've talked about. I'm blanking. Under the Skin is a good example. We discussed that. Yeah, under movie. the skin. Yeah. Um, which I think of as musical films. There are certain films that I'm like, they have a kind of musical quality to them. And 2001 is one of them, not just because of its remarkably apt use of pieces of classical music, but its total auditory 
mise-en-scene, the total use of sound, to me, it's so attuned to sonic occurrences Mm -hmm. that I think of it not as a characteristically filmic film, but as a characteristically musical film. But then I would, wouldn't I? Because, you know, I'm a music person. Kubrick himself said it, that film should model itself more on music oh, than really? on theater. That's yeah. interesting. I could find the quote, but it's it would just basically reiterate what you just said. Um, I just remembered the, yeah. where this came up. This is when we were talking about Black Narcissus. Right. We were talking about how Black Narcissus does something of the same thing. It's a very musical film, not only in the way that it pulls back on a lot of talky stuff and allows you to perceive a flow of aesthetic events in time, mm-hmm. which always feels like kind of a musical thing to do, but also the heavily musicalized ending of it and also its use of sounds, particularly the pervasive sort of basso continuo of wind in that film. And Kubrick is doing similar things with like non-speech, non-musical sounds. So for example, alert sounds. Um, When Hal kills the hibernating astronauts and you spend an obnoxiously long time with the warning screen. Yeah. Beep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then it changes and then you get a different sound. And then when it says life functions terminated or whatever the, the final message is, it's just sudden silence, right. which is as shocking as any sound. Yeah. Um, Another example is when they're on the moon and the black monoliths start to emit that signal that, that right, deafens right. The, the astronauts and, and it goes on and on. This like beep, really grating, yeah. high-pitched signal sound. Yeah. Or for that matter, right at the beginning, the grunts and howls of the hominids, these Australopithecine-like ape creatures. And, you know, the climactic battle where the one tribe uses their newly acquired knowledge of weapons to beat the other tribe and kill their leader. And you see the leader of the victorious tribe howling and, you know, hurling the bone up into Sky and I have a feeling we're going to talk a lot about the cut that yeah. ensues, uh, where famously we cross four million years of time in a single frame. Um, the sound of the howling and grunting becomes so pervasive in that action scene; it becomes like almost a sound mass, not different in kind, although you know different in quality and texture and sound and, and organization, but not different in kind from the sound masses that are created by the use of like Ligeti's atmosphere yeah, and these sound mass compositions. And he just loves creating these blocks of sound that can be sustained for a certain length of time. They can almost be measured out by the yard. And within them, there's all kinds of internal variations. So like, you know, different apes screaming at each other, you'll hear something like a dialogue, except not using words. Mm-hmm. You'll hear a kind of back and forth. It's antiphonal. But the overall effect is of a composer in film who, just as he is adjusting volumes and textures and colors in visual terms is doing the same thing in auditory terms. And these things are happening not in lockstep, but as you say, in counterpoint with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just from an aesthetic point of view, this is one reason why I was like beginning this episode kind of dumping on interpretation, even though that's all we ever do. Um, because I was watching this film again last night and thinking like all of the things I love most about this film are things that I can't really talk about. Right. You know, like it's the particular thrill that I get from some of these sound 
not sound effects, but these sound gestures or the particular quality of light. For example, the incredible compositions at the beginning in the Dawn of Man part, which was done on a back lot in London with rear pro- with um, front projection. Uh, Front projection, yeah, that's right. which is crazy. Um, yeah. And that was a total innovation at the time. So basically, they're projecting that backdrop onto the actors, but the reflective surface on which the projection was projected uh, was so... Uh, it would increase the, the luminosity of the projection such that the contrast between the background and the foreground was so great that the camera didn't pick up those parts of the background that ended up being projected on the actors. It's an Ah, an amazing technique and it looks fantastic. It looks so good to this day. It looks so good. And, And I was sitting there watching it. It was very much like my experience with Black Narcissus, which likewise I found one of the most eye popping films I've ever seen. Just using old fashioned practical effects. Those were just really well made mats. Those were matte yeah. painting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At th- yeah. the feeling I have of, you know, these colors, like the reddish color of the veldt at dawn, mm-hmm. there's an emotion to that color. You used the word luminosity. The luminosity or opacity of certain colors and, you know, visual tableau. Yeah. These are things that I can allude to them in language, but the specific... The that the, the connection that a particular color of red in a particular composition juxtaposed to a particular volume and mass of diegetic or non-diegetic sound that arouses a kind of a ping in my heart, in my sensitive apparatus. And um, and I don't have words for that kind of stuff. Or, yeah. not, or at least the words sure don't come readily. Yeah, that's a good point to make because that is the primary experience the immediate experience of the film all occurs on that level but it's also a film that almost forces you to think right (laughs) and i think that yeah we can't let our interpretations be cloud this primal aesthetic quality of the film just as we shouldn't do that with any artwork really you know there's always an, an element that eludes or escapes our capacity to talk about it but then again i would say that all that is part of this intention he had of making a work of pure cinema, for lack of a better term. And you mentioned the cut from the bone to the ship. And that's kind of where, uh, at least I remember first watching this movie. I was very young when I first watched 2001. I watched it with my uncle who was babysitting me. I I must have been eight or nine. And uh, I'm watching this movie. And then there's the scene with the bone, right? So the the hominids, our ancestors, use a bone as a tool to defeat an enemy and take over this pond that they, these two groups of apes have been fighting over. And then the the ape famously throws the bone in the air, and there are, there's a series of cuts. You see the bone flying, the cuts, you see the bone still up in the air against the backdrop of the sky, and all of a sudden it cuts again to a ship. And I remember that cut hitting me like a like a ton of bricks when I was eight. People talk about this cut, but it's so not undramatic the way it's done. There's no synced sound to the cut. It's not like this. It's not like like they would do today. Right. And it's not even symmetrical. Like the uh, the bone and the ship aren't even perfectly aligned. It's kind of a uh, it's 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 a jump cut. So this imperfect match, this almost clumsy looking cut in this meticulously, beautifully made, tailored, everything's calculated kind of film, draws our attention to the cut. 
It draws Absolutely. attention to the minute black screen, the black that separates each cut in a movie. It reminds us of that. So having said that, let's now go back to the beginning of the film and think about how it opens. And you may remember that the film opens with an overture, which is basically, a, I think it's a mashup of Ligeti or is it just Ligeti's atmospheres? My understanding is that Ligeti sued Kubrick for electronically enhancing or modifying right. some right. of his music, but I've never made a study of which bits are modified and how. So right. let's just say yes. Okay. It's, it's essentially modified Ligeti. Ligeti. Yeah. So the movie begins with a black screen and it lasts about, I think it's seven minutes, six, seven minutes of really kind of like uh, atonal or dissonant music. It's a very haunting effect. Of course, that music that Ligeti comes back later in the film. All you're hearing is that and you're looking at a black screen. And so when you see that imperfect mismatch cut from the bone to the ship, I think you're unconsciously brought back to that black screen because you're seeing the cut. When you see the cut, you're, you're seeing a gap. And the film opens with a black gap. And of course, the black gap, the screen, is the shape of the monolith, which uh, this is not my theory, something I picked up back when I wrote an essay on this years ago from uh, various other sources, which we'll put in the notes. One is Robert Ager, and another one, I can't remember his name. He's one of the guys who talk in the Shining movie, uh, Room uh, 237. So when you're reminded of that black gap, you're brought back to that overture which has the shape of the monolith. And this is an interpretation, okay? So everybody's got one. This My asshole is the monolith. It's not even mine. I borrowed this asshole from others. The monolith is the movie screen. At least at one level of interpretation, the monolith itself is telling us something about the power of cinema to transcend language. It's telling us something about the power of the cinema to create a new way of expressing truth in this universe. And again, this aligns perfectly with the potential of cinema that the Soviet filmmakers saw, which was a way to transcend the class-bound strictures of the various artistic forms of expression that existed hitherto, and to replace them with cinema, which would be a new language for communicating without requiring literacy or anything, for communicating the utopic vision of communism. So like, there's an idea in this 2001 A Space Odyssey in this film that aligns Kubrick with people like Ziga Vertov or Eisenstein about creating a new way of thinking, a new way of being. And um, I think that the monolith, the shape of the monolith, because when they were writing the film, they went from a pyramid to a transparent cube to a tetrahedron. And finally, Kubrick chose a black rectangle as the shape of it. I don't think that's a coincidence that that black monolith has essentially the dimensions of a Cinerama screen. Wow. I never thought of that. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, that would make this film satisfyingly ontological in the sense that the film is a manifestation of the thing that the film is about. I think the film is essentially the same, or it does the same, it fulfills the same purpose in cinema that Fountain fulfilled in, in sculpture and um, four minutes, 33 seconds fulfills in classical music. It's calling us to the essence or the void or the 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 crucible of a medium. It's calling us to the essence of the medium. It's doing much more than that. I don't want to reduce the film to that, but I'm saying amongst other things, 2001 does that for me. 
I mean, if you were to compare 2001 to Fountain and 4 minutes 33 seconds, you can see how they share certain qualities, the kind of the sparseness of them, the austerity of them, the way they they are working on uh, it's like a razor thin conceptual charge that they carry and the space, the vast space they open. So I don't know. I kind of um, I've come around with Fountain, obviously, but <laughs> uh, but I think that if we look at 2001 as a kind of modernist masterpiece in that sense, then there's a lot of affordances there. So there was an interview with Kubrick by Playboy magazine. I'm assuming you've read this interview as a yeah, I read Kubrick it last fan. night. Yeah. Yeah. Early on, the interviewer is saying that eh, the film has been fairly well reviewed, except in New York, and the major New York critics all savaged it. Uh, Kubrick responds by saying, the four critics you mentioned all work for New York publications. The reviews across America and around the world have been 95% enthusiastic. Some were more perceptive than others, of course, but even those who praised the film on relatively superficial grounds were able to get something of its message. New York was the only really hostile city. Perhaps there is a certain element of the lumpen literati that is so dogmatically atheist and materialist and earthbound that it finds the grandeur of space and the myriad mysteries of cosmic intelligence anathema. Yeah. But... I am very interested in that line about the lumpen literati with their unthinking adherence to atheism and materialism. And I found that interesting because Kubrick is, so far as I can tell, a fairly atheistic and materialist guy, but he's also a spiritual guy. And for him, at least, there's no contradiction between those two. And this is something I wanted to talk about. Kubrick would go as far as confirming that this is a film about the God question. He, like David Lynch, absolutely hated to be asked, what does it mean? And was pretty disciplined about not answering those kinds of questions. But he would go so far as to say that this is a film basically about not, you know, necessarily God, the way God is conventionally imagined in Protestant churches, but you know, the question of God, the cosmic problem of God. And this to me is an interesting question. How do you create a spirituality that stays entirely within the kind of scientific, rational worldview as exemplified, for instance, by Arthur C. Clarke? What does God look like under those circumstances? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question, and I think it's an important question that he was asking because what he was essentially doing was trying to find God in the world that we've been given, 
with what we've been given. So in, in that same interview at the beginning, he says, I think it's become possible to develop a scientific concept of God. And if we just think in terms of probabilities of the sheer number of stars in the universe, the sheer number of, of habitable planets that we can theorize exist, the immense oceans of time that separate us from the beginnings of this universe and how many opportunities life has had to emerge and then to evolve, we can conceive of some being out there that would have achieved such a high level of evolution uh, that it would essentially be a god. That's kind of the thought exercise that he's asking us to engage in. There's a lame way of seeing that. And I think the way I described it makes it kind of lame because you're like, well, okay, but what if there isn't? You know, <laughs> there's also odds that nothing has evolved past this point. The point is that what he's saying is that our universe is capable of creating such beings. And it doesn't matter if they exist or not, because it's the power of the imminent universe to make something like that, that is the divine, I think. A long time ago, I wrote a piece called The Kubrick Gaze and followed it up with another piece on reality standards called The Future is Imminent, Speculations on a Possible World. And the point of that essay was to build the idea that the alien, the gray alien, the communion alien that we see on top of Whitley Strieber's book, right, communion, mm. that face was actually the face of God, the way that we now perceived it in a scientific culture, that the transcendence of God, the utter outsideness of God had somehow been replaced with a, a futurity of God, of a God coming to us through time, either through our own evolution or from the deep recesses of space-time, but that in this imminent universe, as it's been described to us by Newton and Einstein and all them, even there, the promise of some divinity coming was present and was essential. Like, even in a perfectly imminent frame, there is room. And in fact, there is a need to ask the God question. And I think mm. that the 2001 scene in that light becomes extremely illuminating in all kinds of ways, because you have several gods in 2001. You have the planets aligning at the beginning. It's weird that the monolith comes when the planets align, right? It's an astrological mm. idea. And then you have the music of the spheres, like the, the blue Danube waltz juxtaposed with these orbiting space stations that are like these immense gods that we inhabit. And then you have Hal, who's essentially a kind of god. And finally, you have this invisible power of the monolith, this invisible intelligence that's trying to communicate to this human being that is, for all intents and purposes, an absolutely transcendent force. But doesn't need to be conceived metaphysically a transcendent. You can conceive it as just an alien intelligence from some other part of the universe coming to, to force us to evolve. So it's asking the God question in a new light. It doesn't require you to choose a camp. You don't need to choose, am I a materialist or an atheist or am I a theist and an idealist? It's trying to get beyond that. Mm. Right? Yeah. I like that. I mean, this is a kind of spirituality that is actually very close in meaning to that line of Clark's. Any sufficiently advanced technology will be indistinguishable from magic. Any sufficiently advanced being is indistinguishable from a god. Yes. And so from a certain point of view, you can say, what is the universe? The universe is a machine for producing gods. Yeah. Well, that's Bergson. Right. And that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then you can say... This is a God that has been generated by the same law, scientific laws of the universe uh, that operate on every other part of the universe. And yet it is possible within that purely material world for something 
to appear that is entirely of that universe and yet and yet what transcends it transcends you think because like i guess that I guess that would be the question, whether you simply become really, really good at being an entity in space and time. In other words, it's the godlike aspect of such a being, simply our own mistaken views that arises from, uh, you know, scale and proportion, like an ant to a human being. Somewhere somebody, it's either Clark or Kubrick says that an ant, I think Kubrick says to an ant that becomes aware of what a human being is, a human being would be a god. Um, but that's just a matter of scale. That's because we're so much bigger than an ant, right? We can do things that an ant can't imagine doing, um, always assuming an ant can imagine anything. Right. But that would be just sort of like being generated by the universe and just being the top dog, top predator, being the most powerful entity. But you're saying that it's maybe a little different that it's actually evolving from the universe in a direction that allows you to transcend the material limits of the universe. Yes, because those material limits have already been transcended in science by particle physics. Um, mm. So we don't know what the limits are, and they certainly aren't anything that we traditionally considered to be limits. Um, I don't like this type of vulgarizing of quantum physics, but I'll do it now because I'm trying to get to, <laughs> trying to articulate what Kubrick might mean. But the point is that I think that uh, the Newtonian laws have already been transcendent. Now, there is a kind of like maintenance of the status quo insofar as most scientists would say, yes, but the chaos that reigns at the subatomic level doesn't cross over it to this scale level. Up, but of yeah. course, it, there's no way of explaining that. There's no theory for why that would be. It's just an arbitrary line we've drawn between an order of effect that we can observe on one side that obeys certain laws and an order of effects on the other side that obeys different laws or no laws at all. Um, so I would say that it's more than just a top predator. I think that at least what the star child signifies is a transcendence of the predator-prey dialectic altogether. At right. least it, there's a suggestion of that. In essence, even if one were to adopt a purely imminent frame and say, whatever the ultimate laws are, there's no transcending them. You could still, if, if the universe allows for the emergence of a being that transcends at least those parts of existence that make human life so difficult or animal life so difficult, at least that's something to hope for, right? Even that's pretty good. If yeah. we can transcend death, that's, that's a good thing. But of course, it doesn't touch on the ultimate questions. You make a very good point there because you're, you're saying that any explanation of God within a purely eminent frame is just a relative explanation. Your God is always a relative God. It can't be an actual divinity that actually transcends the legal framework in which it evolved because that legal framework is the condition for its existence, no matter how evolved it is. So that's a, that's a good question. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm, You're welcome. Let's, um, let's talk about the star child, motherfucker. Okay. By the way, the star child is not called that in the film, obviously, because he occurs, he comes do you around. Know, and, do you know where yeah. that name comes from? Is that Clark's? I think Kubrick uses it in interviews. I'm not sure. We'd have to double check. It's a good name for him. It's, it's a the good child name. in the stars. This is a really good example of the distinction that we've made on a number of occasions between a symbol and a sign. 
Mm. That if you take it as a sign, to me, it is a big flatulent letdown. It's a comically bad ending to the film if you take it as a sign. Yeah. Which is how many people who hated the film took it. Oh, so now there's a floating space fetus who's going to be the messiah or maybe destroy the world or some shit. In other words, taking it as a, a realistic item that exists in the diegetic world. Right. As a, like a, an inventory item. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you're playing a game. It's like, that's in my inventory. Um, <laughs> now I'm going to use the star child. Yeah. Um, I've been playing a lot of Civilization V, which is a like kind of a strategy game. Civ V has gotten me through this fucking quarantine, I'm telling you. Love that game. Spent entirely too much time playing it. But, you know, there's certain like huge overpowered units you can acquire in the game to defeat your foes. I'm just imagining like you get to the end of the game. Oh, I can get a star child. <laughs> and he's got the like laser beams coming out of his eyes, like <laughs> just frying everything. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what that's essentially what he is in, in Kark's novel. Right. And from that point of view, he becomes a sign, a sign of a certain causal chain and narrative that has come to fruition. And now we've got this enormously overpowered unit floating around the sky, uh, a kind of biological satellite. That's lame. That's some lame shit. I can't make it work out in my head. It doesn't make any sense. To the extent it does make sense, it makes a stupid sort of sense. Yeah. Um, but if I don't try to make sense of it, if I don't try to think, okay, how did he get there? How is he breathing there in the vacuum of space? You know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like if right. I'm asking literalistic questions, it remains a sign. But if I don't ask those questions, if I just sort of allow myself to dig the star child, just groove on the beauty of that image. Because, I mean, above all, to me, that image is eye-wateringly beautiful. It's mm. so beautiful. It's one of those objects in the film that has a kind of perfect sheen around it. It just looks perfect. I don't know technically how he did it, but um, but he did a hell of a job, whatever yeah. it is he did to fabricate that thing. It's beautiful. And it's all of that stuff I was saying about, you know, the things about this film that matter most to me are the things I can't easily put in words. It's aesthetic things, colors and volumes and textures and motions and blah, blah, blah. It's on that level that the Star Child to me becomes an immensely powerful symbol. Uh, it's something that, as Jung says, expresses something that cannot be expressed in any other way. And symbol of what, you know, well, sim symbols by their nature are of many, many things and they can't be limited to any one. So you can say, well, it's a symbol of human development, of evolution. Yeah, obviously. And but more. The, yeah, right. And more. But yeah. the but the full symbolness of the symbol is um, it's almost like a piece of uranium or plutonium <laughs> or something floating out there emanating energy. It just glows with this kind of radioactive force that is prior to or possibly after all the words. Exactly. You know? Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, totally. The Star Child does one thing, one action in the film. The camera pans and reveals the Star Child as it is approaching Earth. And then, of course, the Star Child turns and looks at us or looks at the screen in the theory I was laying out earlier, it looks at the monolith, sees through 
to I think that the, it's hard to interpret the star child as a non-transcendent. To me, that's the point in the film where we go, oh, this is not just about an imminent God. This is about some kind of transcendence. It, it, yes. This makes no sense in any way, unless I look at it as, a, as you say, as a kind of pure symbol of an ultimate transcendence of the conditions that brought us here or that brought those astronauts there. Um, there is a theory that the uh, I've read this. I don't know where I got this, but uh, somewhere somebody came up with a theory that the the ship. I can't remember the name of the ship. Discovery. That okay. The ship that travels to Jupiter, to the mm-hmm. moons of Jupiter, is actually uh, the sperm. Jupiter is the ovum, and then the whole film is an allegory for is taking place within. Oh, uh, for a woman's body. Yeah, and it's about how a fetus is formed. <laughs> You know, that's Um, interesting. There's a moment that I never noticed before. I watched the film again last night. And there's a moment in the beyond, uh, what's the final segment title? Beyond Beyond the the Infinite. Infinite. Yeah. Which would imply again transcendence. Yeah. Beyond the Infinite. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Where you see this little thing off in the lower, I think, right-hand corner of the screen that I think is the pod that Dave is in. But it looks exactly like a spermatozoa. Yeah, because it's got a tail. It's got, it's a, got a tail. Yeah. 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 And so that would seem to lend credence to that idea. Yeah. Then when you think about the amount of emphasis, uh, just the, you know, in a piece of music like a sonata, you create emphases by repetition. For instance, a theme that repeats mm-hmm. is given thereby a certain amount of weight, right? And this is another way that Kubrick is a very musical film director because he will take motifs that through repetition gain weight without necessarily gaining that purely kind of verbal, this is what that means, or this is how that moves the plot along kind of meaning. And one of those motifs is birth. There's the dawn of man, of course, the idea that we've got the the birth of a new form of intelligence. And this happens again later in the uncovering of the monolith on the moon base, where we don't see the consequences of it, but we have definitely the same sense of birth and the birth of the star child. But we also have the birthday of the little girl that Dr. Haywood Floyd, do you remember like early in the central section of the film where Haywood Floyd is going up to deliver his banal little speech and see the monolith. The cover-up speech. It's actually a very sinister speech, but we don't, it, it doesn't, we, we're it not is. told to find it sinister. So we're just like, okay, they're basically covering it up and, and then quarantining like, everybody. Hell of, a, hell of a speech you gave there. And yeah, it's like, I know. yeah, it's sure going <laughs> to buck up morale. Yeah. It's like perfect example of the banality that yeah, you were talking evil, about. Yeah. Or just banality, you know, pure and simple, just people saying boring shit and we get to watch them say boring shit at great length, but somehow this is very cinematic. Yeah. Um anyway, so you know, when Haywood Floyd gets into that little phone booth to have a video call with his daughter, which I believe is Kubrick's own daughter. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. And that's another great example of exaggeratedly insipid dialogue. Apparently, it was like a little home movie of Kubrick's daughter and the actor who played Haywood Floyd just kind of ad-libbed some things to make it sound like they were having a conversation. Right. I think I heard that. That's interesting. You would know better than I, but the the technical details. But in any event, moments like that, 
And then there's this scene with Frank Poole, the astronaut that Hal kills, lying on, I guess, a tanning bed and watching a video recording his parents have sent him, wishing him a happy birthday and singing happy birthday. To me, that's one of those things where it's like Kubrick has a motif and he is going to develop that motif through varied repetition, just like a classical composer would, through development of a motif. And it's just like, let's hear that theme again. Does that mean that it's the most important theme? Does it mean that that moment where Frank is hearing his parents sing happy birthday to him is like one of the most important scenes in the film? Far from it. But it's the sheer formal repetition of a motif that gives the thing its weight so that when we get to the real birth at the end, we have what is universally apprehensible as the image of new birth. Mm -hmm. You know, a newborn baby, you know, the neoteny is so strong in the way the model was shaped that it's like kind of a fetus, kind of a newborn baby. Yeah, right. Biologically, neoteny is a thing that animals have, you know, it's the like large eyes and rounded features thing that you see, for example, in cute animal cartoons where it's um, cultivated very conscientiously for uh, like all of the animals are going to have those kind of neotenous features. Neoteny works as a way of, for example, drawing cute animals because human beings are basically hardwired biologically to feel a certain thing when we see a neotenous creature. Puppies are cute because they're neotenous. You know, babies are cute because they're neotenous. We want to take care of them. And it seems like a, a crime to hurt a creature that looks like that, right? And so Kubrick takes something from the inventory of forms that... You do not need any education to understand. If you are a functioning human being with a functioning brain, you will understand the star child as an image of birth, of new life. And then that powerful punch is itself amplified by the careful formal repetition of this motive in all of the important and unimportant moments that he's done this. It's a very formalistic way of setting up this yes. beautiful final shot that doesn't need to mean anything in the sense of like, what's going to happen next? Or how did we get here? Or how is he breathing in outer space? Um, it just becomes a kind of a pure formal symbol of new birth. And of course, new birth all on its own is pretty underdetermined. New birth can mean a lot of things. And of course, it's going to mean some things more than others in the context of a film like 2001. But I guess my point is that for me, Star Child is a symbol that the whole film has been patiently building up. And when it detonates, its power is such that it's beyond language. You know, right. if I were to say like, oh, to me, the star child means blah, I would be diminishing it actually from what it is. Right. I agree. But that shouldn't stop us. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's brilliant. There's also another moment where birth is referenced is when Ahal is dying, he regresses to his Oh, yes, birth. that's right. He goes yes. back, hello, gentlemen. He, I think he even dates it. He's like, this is uh, yeah. April such and such, blah, blah, blah. And I, I am Hal. So he regresses to his birth. And uh, what a beautiful scene that is. I mean, we could go on about, we'll get to Hal, but about the star child. Years ago, I got the VCR VHS set for Kubrick, all of his films. So I was uh, living in Toronto at the time. I remember I took a few days and I, I watched them in sequence. And I noticed some interesting things. I, so I watched Dr. Strangelove 
and realize that it ends with Vera Lynn singing, we'll meet again some sunny day. And then the corpus continues with 2001, which opens with a sunrise and the dawn of man. And after the world's exploded, right? Because Dr. Strangelove ends with the world being destroyed. And then it's almost like we return to the beginning. And now it's the dawn of man. If you were to see Strangelove and 2001 as chapters in the same film. And then, mm. and then I watched Clockwork Orange. And there's a moment in Clockwork Orange where Alex and his goons are attacking. They're about to beat a vagrant, a homeless guy in a tunnel. And the homeless guy has a little monologue before they beat him. He says something like, no one cares about earthly things no more with men spinning around the moon and men going off into space. So I thought, wow, is this, is Clockwork Orange going on on earth while the events of 2001 are unfolding in space? And then, of course, if you look at the last shot of 2001, you get the space child looking at the camera. First shot of Clockwork Orange, Alex gazing at the camera. There's a pure continuity mm between the star child and Alex, which I found strange. That's all in my essay, Kubrick Gaze, which I think you can still find online. But the point is that to me, the star child is like the possibility of transcending uh, a universe which Kubrick otherwise describes in all of his films as a kind of maze. You see this in The Shining very clearly, that the universe is a kind of prison or maze that we have to somehow break out of. And the star child can be interpreted as a symbol of this breaking out, just like Alex is an attempt to break out. And Danny in The Shining is an attempt to break out. Or Nicole Kidman's character in Eyes Wide Shut is an attempt to break out, to see through. Speaking of repetition, you can see through Kubrick's, all of Kubrick's films, this tendency to use the gaze as a way to show that the character is seeing through seeing through the condition, mm. seeing through the labyrinth, out into, almost out of the screen. And mm. um, so if you interpret the star child in that light, then again, we're brought back to this question of whether the mystical vision behind 2001 is indeed affirming something like a transcendence or is just the kind of like uh, imminent frame transformation of elements that always, already exist within the universe. I think there's an intimation of total transcendence, an intimation of a kind of religious eschaton of some sort. And of course, that would align nicely with how the star child feels when he appears on screen. And of course, Hal also, we get Hal's cyclopean eye staring at us a lot in this film. Yes. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to talk about uh, Ziga Vertov. Vertov was another Soviet filmmaker, absolutely brilliant filmmaker, whose most famous film was called Man with a Movie Camera. Vertov, what he saw was he was a full-on Soviet. So he believed that cinema was this new way of talking, new way of communicating, this way of transcending the class struggle altogether, essentially. And he wrote very poetic manifestos about cinema. And uh, I'm going to read one. And you can just picture Hal's cyclopean eye while I read it. It's very short. So he's writing in the voice of the camera itself, Vertov is. He writes, I am kino eye. I am a mechanical eye. I, a machine, show you the world as only I can see it. Now and forever, I free myself from human immobility. I am in constant motion. I draw near, then away from objects. I crawl under. I climb onto them. I move apace with the muzzle of galloping horses. I plunge full speed into a crowd. I outstrip running soldiers. I fall on my back. I ascend with an airplane. I plunge and soar together with plunging and soaring bodies. 
Now I, a camera, fling myself along their resultant, maneuvering in the chaos of movement, recording movement, starting with movements composed of the most complex combinations. Freed from the rule of 16, 17 frames per second, free of the limits of time and space, I put together any points in the universe, no matter where I've recorded them. My path leads to the creation of a fresh perception of the world. I decipher in a new way a world unknown to you. That's the potential that Vertov saw in cinema. And if we read that and we think about Hal's eye, which evidently almost deliberately looks like the front of a Bolex camera, it looks like both a projector lens and a camera lens. Then again, we get a sense that what this film is talking about is the magic of cinema itself to transcend a kind of all too human way of seeing. And the potential that Vertov saw in cinema, which was to free the human from its humanity, to transcend the human. Again, you can find echoes of that in 2001 and the way that Hal fulfills this strange role of showing us both, well, Hal does two things. He shows us the limitations of technology, but he also shows us a kind of detached, almost in a Gnostic way, a kind of like almost platonic way of seeing the world, of just seeing things as they are. Yeah. Hal performs the condition of cinema. As in the Vertov essay that you just read from, the idea is that, you know, a camera is not limited by the things that limit a human eye, you know. Cuts, for example, to cut between shots is something that is not given us to do, to be able to take different discontinuous units of space and time and to cut them together, to be able to shift your perspective from one moment to the next. So one frame, it's a bone. The next frame, it's a spaceship from four million years later. Our limitations in space and time are abrogated by the film camera. So it's interesting because you think about what you say, what is film? Film is a narrative medium. It's a medium of juxtaposed shots. This is how you create a sense of succession of time, of narrative, is by the juxtaposition of shots. And yet the way we're sort of thinking about it, thinking about Hal as a figure for what the cinema is, it actually reverses into something that's quite the opposite of that linear narrative medium that what Vertov is talking about and what the condition that Hal performs is that all at onceness, that all overness, that sense of diviner's time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or what McClune is talking about when he talks about the world of creative configuration and structure. Right. It's that mystical something that he had such a hell of a time putting into words that people could understand. What happens when your attention shifts from the foreground to the background, from the message to the medium, when you are moving up the chain to a kind of more inclusive, holistic, integral, all at once kind of perception. That's what Hal is he sees the whole ship all at the same time. Right. He sees things from more, more and it, this becomes a big plot point because Frank and Dave have to figure out how to have a conversation about shutting down Hal without Hal hearing it, and they can't do it. They don't figure out how to do it. They figure out how to shut down his ears, but they don't turn off his eyes, that eye you know, as they are having this conversation, we keep seeing this eye staring at them. Mm-hmm. 
so Hal performs this condition of an all-over perception, right? A perception that is going beyond limits of space and time. That's very interesting to think of in connection with film. And put my historian hat on. Something that a lot of people forget is how much number one countercultural aesthetics in the '60s rested upon a particular understanding of film as a basically psychedelic medium, a medium capable of revealing ourselves to ourselves, a medium capable of taking us on inner voyages of exploration in a way that supposedly novels could not do. And so there was a lot of loose talk in the 60s about how novels are dead. The only medium, artistic medium of our time is film. And you can see how this film would have satisfied not only demand for psychedelia in the sense of like, oh yeah, that beyond the infinite section is pretty trippy. And apparently when you would go and see screening of this film back in the old days, you'd see a vast cloud of pot smoke beginning to waft up from the crowd as the beyond the infinite bit began. But that's not the psychedelia I'm actually talking about. It's more like the idea that film precisely by performing this abrogation of space and time that I was just talking about would be capable of taking us into a new realm beyond the infinite. And it explains why there was such a powerful countercultural reception for this film. This film was a big fucking deal in the like hippie alternative press, the underground press of the late sixties. Um, it was because this film seemed to be, I think, proof of concept for a new conception of film that people were imagining, a basically spiritual conception of film, film that would be able to just fundamentally on the level of medium do something that other art forms could not or at least had not done. And, you know, we can disagree about the particularities of that aesthetic theory, but nevertheless, it does make that film legible in a very particular historical context. Right. You're right. Even though we, we might argue against the exclusivity of film when it comes to the, its power to transcend, maybe all art forms can do this, but that's what they all do. Maybe film is just making explicit something that's been implicitly present in all art. That's another discussion. But one thing we can't deny or debate too much, I think, is that film allows us to do things to match the speed of thought in expression. When you cut from one thing to another, the place where that happens in yourself is in your imagination. The imagination does cut from one thing to another and does yes. form bizarre synchronistic connections between things that are disparate and separate in reality. That's precisely what the imagination does. You know, the bone of the beginning is often that the hominids used to uh, as a weapon. It's right to say that the hominid looks down at a bone and sees a weapon, but that's not what he actually sees. What he sees are the tapers falling dead because of this weapon. So what you see when he's looking at these bones on the desert floor, he picks up one bone, then you cut, you silently cut to an image of a taper. Is that what you call those animals? Yeah. Yeah. A taper falling on its side. And then he's, he moves the bone a bit. Then you cut again to another taper falling. He's imagining a world that doesn't yet exist. A yes, world where tapers right. fall because of these bones. He's taking two elements of this world, the tapers he wants to eat and this bone on the ground and creating a new connection. That's what the monolith gives you. The monolith didn't go, hey, bud, you can use that bone there to beat the shit out of your neighbors. That's not what, <laughs> what the monolith does. It gives this creature the power 
power to imagine, in other words, the power to make cinema in its head. And cinema is the way in which we have, through the most industrial means imaginable, have created a way out and an egress, a kind of way out of this technological prison, right? Um, it's like what Heidegger says in the question concerning technology. He goes on and on about inframing, the way technology inframes things, contains things, put things in these silos where they're turned into resource to be used. But he says, but behind technology, behind even the most nefarious or awful use of technology, there is this salvific power that he calls poiesis, right? The, the Greek word for poetic creation, of creation. And I think that what cinema does for modern industrial technology is give us a sense of the poiesis that undergirds the whole thing. The power to speak in the language of the imagination through images is yep. huge. Um, and I yep. think that uh, the film kind of expresses that in a, an interesting way. What you're saying is reminding me of a short essay by Gilbert Ryle called Improvisation. And he's pointing out a basic philosophical problem with improvisation, which is sort of like, how do you get something from, not something from nothing, but like, how do you get something that is more than the sum of all the things that went into it? Gilbert Ryle points out something really interesting about improvisation. He says, we admire and envy people for their ability and readiness to innovate. And he comes up with various attributes for the kinds of people, innovative people we admire, imaginative, inventive, enterprising, inquisitive, ingenious, witty, cunning, observant, responsive, alert, creative. Um, it's characteristic of them that they compose, design, experiment, initiate, select, adapt, improvise, and so on and so on. He continues, they do not all the time just stick to the beaten tracks, i.e. to set routines or procedures. He says that people who are like this may be creators in all kinds of different ways. As he says, they may be jaywalkers or they might be pathfinders. But either way, he says, for them, it is part of intelligence to seize new opportunities and to face new hazards. To be, in short, not a tram, but a bus. In other words, being able to move along new paths, like a bus or like an automobile. Uh, if I decide I want to take this weird little side street because I think it might get me to my destination more effectively, I can do that. Whereas a tram can only go in the directions that have been set down by the tracks that it runs on. So he's trying to understand those kinds of people, people who are cars, not trams. And you say, where does this capacity for innovation, where does it come from? There are two possible ways of answering this. And one way is to say that innovation is taking things that are known and scaling up from them. And so it's like climbing a ladder, you know. Well, I want to get from here down on the ground to 12 feet up above me. How do I do it? Step by step. And it's a more or less algorithmic process. It is through the sheer repetition of a known activity, a step, that I can move from here to there. And in this case, here to there is from a state of not inventing something to the state of having invented something, having improvised some fresh solution to an existing problem. And Ryle points out that, uh, and I said that there's two ways of answering that. And one is this algorithmic way, uh, this idea that just basically says you take something that is known and you just scale up from it. And the other way is to say 
that there is in every act of innovation, every act of improvisation, something new, something that is not simply the repetition or combination of known elements, but some new element enters the scene. And Ryle wants to think his way through the latter possibility is something that he, he feels like, you know, maybe you don't believe this kind of ability of a creative imagination to jump levels without those sort of intermediate steps, right? But he's like, but improvisation becomes almost impossible to understand, like not even like jazz improvisation, just being able to improvise a clever solution to something that's happening to you right now. It's like improvisation becomes basically incomprehensible if you are committed to the kind of algorithmic interpretation that insists on all new actions being scalings up of existing actions. All new things are variations of or recombinations of existing elements. Um, yeah. And so for that point of view, what the black monolith allows that hominid to do is to vault over this vast gap, like the difference between a one and a zero is infinite. Right. Infinity times zero is still zero. Yeah. Zeno. Right? Yeah. And so the hominid has zero. He can't imagine what's not in front of him. And when he grasps the bone and understands its possibilities as a weapon, he moves from zero to one. He yeah. moves from not having an ability to perceive what isn't there to having that ability. What are the intermediate steps by which he gets from that to, the, to, to that? Yeah. It's a miracle. And that's what the black monolith can do. It can allow that kind of plateau jump that doesn't make sense within that purely imminent frame thing. I mean, it's getting back to what we were saying about, like, is there a transcendence implicit in this very rational and scientific God idea that seems to be emerging from this film. And some people might be listening to this and be like, well, why is transcendence important? I think it's really important. I think it's the essence of the thing because we have to ask the question, the star child, when he appears at the end, is he a scaled up version of Dave? Is he a superhuman or is he a beyond human? Yeah. Is he some version of something we've already seen or is he something totally different? I would right. say he's totally different. I agree. And I think that the moment of transcendence in the film, or there are many, it's the cut. It's the cut from one thing to another, which is a causal. It's necessarily synchronistic in its generation of meaning. The cut from the bone, nothing causes the cut from the bone to the spaceship other than the arbitrary, contingent, creative selection of the camera to cut from one thing to another. And it's in that cut, that cut from bone to bone as weapon, that, that cut from seeing the way things are to seeing the way things ought to be, for the hominid at least, that's where the transcendence happens. There's a thing in, in philosophy called the hard problem of consciousness, which is how do we explain the emergence of consciousness from non-conscious elements, right? It's a huge problem if you're thinking within the imminent frame of modern secular thought. It's a huge, almost intractable problem. How do we solve this problem? If I take one stick and I put another stick next to it, and how many sticks do I have to add up and pile up for the sticks to become conscious, 
to start to be able to imagine another pile of sticks. There's no essential difference between the brain matter in our heads and those sticks. It's just material. How does it become conscious? It's a huge problem if you look at things a certain way. But of course, even our capacity to conceive and articulate the hard problem already presupposes a type of transcendence implicit in the possibility, in the, in the, in the act of thinking of the world as such. The hard problem in itself already has its solution, which is that not everything in this universe needs a cause. Some new element can just come in out of nowhere, including consciousness. And the, uh, the space where that happens, since it's transcendent, you can't put it on film, but you can, as Kubrick does, constantly evoke it through the cut. A strong cut brings us back to that dark, strange non-space, this womb from which the new emerges constantly. It's hard to articulate this thought, but I think there's something in it because it's in the cut that the creative, in the I Ching sense, the, you know, the first hexagram, the creative, the new, the thing that comes in, that, that breaks in, that's where the, that force is expressed in the film. And... Um, so, yeah, so I think to the answer to the question that we were asking at the beginning, I think that this is a film about transcendence. And that's precisely what's missing from Clark's version is that it doesn't address this question. Uh, and the God question, whether we frame it in terms of is there a God in the Christian sense or is there are there aliens who are just as good as gods in an imminent sense? I think that both those questions ultimately um, they're just the question of transcendence reframed. Is everything determined or is something new possible? Is it possible for something to happen without it having been caused, without having been determined by pre-existing uh, reality? And the film seems to answer that affirmatively. And I think that our show, we constantly are trying to find ways of affirming that as well. And it's staring at you right in the eye. That moment that bone turns into a spaceship. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.